In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, today we consider the verbal exchange that takes place between the Canaanite woman and our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever I've heard this text before, I always thought that uh, her daughter was plagued by a demon and that this was just some sort of unfortunate series of events that it just happened to happen to her. Uh, But before we get deeper into the text, I want you to understand first what it means to be a Canaanite. The Canaanites were a cursed people. Ever since Noah's son, Ham, exploited his father's nakedness, Noah then cursed Ham's son, Canaan, right? If you remember this. And the, the Canaanites are the descendants of those who, uh, of, of Ham, who don't honor their father or their mother. Uh, but more than that, they come from a people who just don't believe or have faith in God. The Canaanites were, in fact, polytheists. They worshipped many gods. They didn't even keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before my face. But they had many gods. And so some of these gods were assigned to different aspects of life. So if you wanted a good wife, uh, then you'd have to make a certain kind of sacrifice to get that. If you wanted a good home, for example, or the crops to do well, uh, you'd have to give another sort of sacrifice or offering for that. Well, one of their many gods, uh, perhaps the, 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 the chief god and the most well-known god, was called Molech, which in Hebrew means king. And he was the god who was in charge, at least in their minds. He's the god you wanted on your side. He's the god that could ensure you a long and happy and prosperous and financially successful life with a lot of wealth and prosperity. However, getting Molech on your side came at a price, a very costly price that people were still willing to pay. And what was that price for his favor and blessing? Your firstborn child. This was the way to satisfy Molech the Canaanite God who required child sacrifice. This was an actual thing. And so the way they did this is they built a large brass oven in the shape of a bull. And his his arms were extended out like this, right? Uh, And and they would light a fire beneath the brass bull so that the entire statue, after some time, would be glowing red with heat radiating through every part of, of this bull. And then the priest would walk up to the parents uh, who wanted to ensure their own happiness, their own prosperity, their own financial security. They would place their newborn, firstborn infant into the arms of that priest. He would take that little infant and place him in the glowing red brass hands of Molech. And while all of that was happening, the other priests would be beating on a drum very loudly, shouting, making a lot of sound. Why is that? Precisely so that the mother and father wouldn't hear their own infant cry in agony. And so they sacrificed their firstborn child to Molech. They would literally get rid of the child in their hands so that they could live a comfortable and financially prosperous life. They sacrificed their own child to make their own lives better. That's what Canaanites did. 
And this is crazy. This is outright gut-wrenching and disgusting. In fact, I was wrestling uh, with whether or not I was even going to say this today or not because it's just so grotesque. Uh, But it's the truth. Now, I'm not going to expand much more upon this in today's sermon, but I just want you to think about this at least. Before you get upset and say, what is wrong with those people? How in the world could they believe such a thing? It's so primitive. It's so barbaric. I want you to think, does this remind you of anything? Does the idea of sacrificing a baby in order to make your own life a little more comfortable and financially prosperous look like anything that's going on in the world around us? Does the concept of trading a child for a better life ring a bell? I mean, at at the very least, those babies sacrificed to Molech got to live a little bit longer than the infants today who are sacrificed in the womb. All right, so... Why am I telling you this? It's because I want you to understand the spiritual degradation and depravity of the Canaanites. This was their chief God and this was their religion. So let's not be naive and think that the Canaanite woman was completely innocent and that her daughter was simply a victim of some unfortunate circumstance where she just happened to be possessed by a demon. I'll say it more clearly. I think this woman is at fault for her daughter being demon-possessed. I think she has a lot to do with it. It's very likely that by engaging in all of these practices of the occult, she probably even invited this demon into her house, into her life, and in fact, even into her child. And now it has taken control. So who knows if she even sacrificed her own firstborn to Molech? Who knows what other sinful choices this Canaanite woman might have made for herself, for her family, what other sort of wickedness or evil she had done? We don't know, but it's not a stretch to to, to say that she most likely, most certainly, has caused her own suffering. And so this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus with a heavy heart. And she's begging him to rescue her from a mess that she herself created. She knows that she's in too deep, that she's made one too many mistakes, that she flirted with evil one too many times. Now her daughter has no control over her own body, but rather she is possessed, uh, taken control of by an evil spirit, by a demon. And her daughter is suffering an agonizing pain, a turmoil that might lead to her own death and condemnation. And this mother is weeping and has no, uh, no resource, no other place to look, nothing to do about this. She knows her daughter's condition, and she knows that she herself was the one who caused it. Her daughter is suffering the consequence of her mother's sin, and this poor woman knows her guilt. So she comes to Jesus with a burdened conscience, an aching heart, terrified at what she's done. So I would suggest to you that this is why the Canaanite woman is so humble before the Lord. I'll I'll make a comment here. 
when people realize the gravity of their sin and when they see how damaging it truly is, they're no longer interested in proving their innocence anymore. They simply cry out for help. They don't care about being right or their ego or their image. They only care that the Lord has mercy upon them. So people who recognize the weight of their own guilt and sin, they humble themselves. The reverse is also true. When you don't realize how much, uh, how much damage your sin causes, how, and when you don't realize how much your sins have hurt somebody else or ruined their life, then you're not going to be very humble about those sins. You're not going to be very humble or repentant. In fact, you'll try to minimize them. You'll excuse the sin. You'll defend it, dismiss it. You get angry if somebody calls it out. You have all these reasons and explanations as to why you're not really at fault for what's going on. So as a result... You won't humble yourself before the Lord. You won't cry out for his help because you don't really need it. But those who know their sin and its consequences, and they know that they got themselves into the mess that they're in, will be humble before the Lord. So I would suggest to you that this is why this woman is so humble, because she realizes it's her fault. And this is why you don't find her defending herself or explaining away her actions or getting indignant at the Lord's behavior. She's not arguing with Jesus or stomping her feet at him when he comes to to, to seemingly insult her with the worst kinds of insults you will find in the Bible. She cried out to him and he ignored her. The scripture said he answered her not a word. She cries out again and he says, I was not sent But to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he says to his disciples, not even looking at her. And then she throws herself at his feet and she cries out for help. Lord, help me. And in all of this, she bears it because she knows her guilt. She knows that he's, he he knows, she knows that he knows everything she has done. All of the sins, all of the wickedness, he saw. He saw her entire life. He knows her entire life. She knows that she has nothing to hide. And in fact, she can't hide it from the Lord. She knows who he is, God the Lord. And she knows who she is, a poor, miserable sinner. So she knows that the Lord has every single right in the world to simply pass her by and not even glance her direction. She knows that Jesus has every reason in the world to have nothing to do with her because she, for so many years, had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, had, had wanted nothing to do with him. And she knows her own guilt, her sin, her miserable condition, and she's also not afraid to be humbled and humiliated before the Lord. She gets her sin. She understands it. And we know this because she no longer cares about being right or her own pride or ego. She no longer cares about her own feelings or the fact that she feels offended or not. She doesn't care if the Lord is seemingly nice to her anymore or not. She only cares that the Lord listens to her and that he would have mercy on her. But she would not give up because she only wants his help. She's not looking for a pat on the back or a dismissal of, okay, it's fine, don't worry about it. She's looking for his help. So after all this crying out, this wailing, this begging, the Lord finally turns to her and he says, now looking at her, he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it 
to the dogs. I couldn't find the quote, but in one of Martin Luther's writings, he says something uh, to the effect of, if the Lord had spoken to me this way, (laughs) I would have run for the hills. If the Lord said something similar like this, uh, even in, in some degree like this to us, we would be gone. We wouldn't be here. We, people have left the church for so much less, for less things. Everyone is stunned by the words of Jesus. I have no explanation. No theologian has an explanation of what's going on. We're, we, we can guess, we can say that he's trying to draw this faith out of her. I, I don't know, but he brings this, this, uh, heavy, these heavy words upon her that everyone is stunned by. There, there's some liberal pastors who have even apologized for Jesus doing this. We know Jesus didn't sin. He cannot sin. But some have apologized for him and, and saying, well, we, we don't know what's going on. We're sorry. Uh, he, he has no right to speak this way. There are theologians who say that Jesus was wrong for doing this, that this was a sin that proved that he was not perfect. He wasn't in the right state of mind. He was having a bad day. Everyone is taken back by these words except for her. <laughs> the one he spoke those words to. She, in fact, doesn't even flinch. And without missing a beat, he says those words, and she says, yes, Lord, yes, I agree. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is amazing. That is the verse That's the very best sentence in this whole reading. In fact, I would argue that is the very best response anyone has uttered to the Lord. At just the point you think she is growing discouraged, that she's weary, she's going to give up and get angry. Instead, she says that. And and the very best word in that whole sentence is the possessive pronoun. There. Yes, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Do you get it? With that word, she's saying, all right, all right, I take it. I admit it. I'm a dog. Yes, I've gotten myself into this mess. I've I've done this. I've done this to myself. I, I, I am a poor, miserable sinner. If you call me that, I don't deserve to be called any better. Not for what I've done, not for who I am. And so if you call me a dog, I will gladly be called a dog if that means I am yours. (laughs) If that means I am your dog. If that means I am in your house. If you are my master. If you are my Lord. If you are my owner. If you are my caretaker, my redeemer, my supplier. Then I will gladly be brought low. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked from which I came. I would rather be a dog under your table, Lord, eating the crumbs that fall from that table than be a king in the land of the wicked. I am not ashamed to be the least in the kingdom of heaven as long as you are there with me. Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And the Lord relents and he says, O woman, (laughs) great is your faith. Great. This is great. What you have said, what you have done, this is great faith. 
A faith that is unshaken, that clings to the mercies of God like a pit bull. His entire countenance towards her changes. And so the the question is, what is it? What is it about this woman's faith that is so great? I can think of three things. And the first is that she is a Gentile. Jesus is a Jew. And Jesus had the reputation of being a savior for only the Jews. But she wouldn't believe it. She knows that he came certainly for the Jews first, but she also knows that he didn't come only for the Jews. She's happy to be second. She trusts that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all. She knows that he came to rescue all people from their sin, and that is faith. The second thing is that she has great faith because she is bold in her persistence and her prayers to the Lord even though she herself has made the mess that she's praying to get out of. In other words, she's praying that the Lord, even while, to the Lord, even while she knows and feels her own guilt and unworthiness. And the reason this is great faith is because of this. In order for her to go up to Jesus, to persist so much in her prayers, to not give up, to beg for his help, even though she is in over her head, over her own sin, guilt, and wickedness, she has to know and believe and trust that the Lord will not deal with her according to any of her sins but that he will deal with her according to his love and to his kindness and to his grace and to his mercy. I'll say it again. In order for her to be so persistent, it's because she believes the Lord will not deal with her according to to her sins, but according to his abounding love for her. She knows that he is kind And she wrestles with him and that he will answer her. And so the same is true for you. Your faith is great when you know that the Lord does not deal with you according to your sins. But when you trust that he deals with you according to his loving kindness. He does not deal with you according to your works. But according to the works that he has done for you. That means great is your faith when you have cheated and told lies and been narcissistic and selfish and rejected his word and fallen into grave and manifest sins and yet still come to him and pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me. This is why you came. Come help me. I need your help. Great is your faith when you repent, knowing that the Lord is wanting, waiting to be kind to you. Knowing that he will declare you forgiven for all of your sins, even though you don't deserve an ounce of that forgiveness. Finally, and third, and finally, the reason her faith is great is because she prays just for crumbs. Just give me some crumbs, the leftovers that fall from that table. (laughs) What were the crumbs she's praying for? She's praying for this little tiny thing, this tiny little request that Jesus would from a distance without having ever met the daughter by a single word of power that he would drive away the nastiest kind of demon out of her soul and cleanse her. That's all. 
Just a little tiny crumb, just a little request that I'm making from you that just falls from the table. This was a huge thing for her. This was impossible for her. Nobody could help her. She was at the end of her rope. Nobody could help. Nobody could give relief. No doctor could give a medicine that would help her or relieve her. No one could alleviate the pain. And yet she comes to Jesus with such a high opinion of the Lord that she says to herself, I know that the whole world with all of our might can't do a thing about this demon that's possessing my daughter, but the Lord can And it's nothing for him. (laughs) It is nothing. This is just a crumb from the table. I'm not even asking for the whole loaf. This is just dust from the table. With one word, he can drive this demon away. That's the trust that she has in the Lord. And that's what great faith is. It's having a great opinion of Christ and knowing that he has the great opinion of you. It's not only that he is all-powerful and almighty and all-holy, but that he wants to help and have mercy. And so you come here today with a mountain of sin that you are buried under. The Lord is not only able to take it away, but he is happy to. And the reason the Lord is able to remove even the most vile and filthy and serious of your sins, no matter what they are, is because he has already born the full curse of your sins on the cross in his body. He has already forgiven the sins of the world and he declares that to you in this moment today. He already did the hard work. That was not easy on the cross. His death on the cross was not easy. That was not simple, but he accomplished it. And so now he turns to you and it is a small thing for him to give you full remission of your sins even though that is the biggest and most infinite of all blessings that you will ever receive. So even if you've gotten yourself into the mess of sin and guilt and shame and embarrassment and trouble that you are in right now, the Lord is here to get you out. The Lord is here to give you a blessed end. Life eternal forgiveness to give you all the innocence, the righteousness, and the blessedness that he has. And this day you beg for crumbs, but he will do something even better. He will give you his very body and blood to cure you, to heal your soul, to send the demons away and to commune with you and bring you to himself forever. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.